0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's cold out there. This is like winter. It's warm in here. The tendency is to fall asleep because the heat's on. So I'm going to do it again. Good evening, everyone. Ah, we're awake. Great. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. Uh, let me do one quick check-in. How many of you are here for the first time? First time, a couple of hands have gone up. Well, welcome. We're specifically excited about having you here. Um, One of the things that we like to do with programs like this, and I'll reiterate this at the end of the evening, we have a reception we do uh, as a chance after the program to continue the conversation. So it's one of the ways that we help build community and continue to sustain relations. So I hope you'll come and I'll give that invitation again, but it's a good way to meet new friends and old acquaintances with a common set of interests. So it's always great. So welcome. Uh, I'm going to lift up the four P's. This is the house rule of the Rothko Chapel. Keep mindful tonight of the following. Phones, photos, paintings, and presents. So simply this, if you would silence your phones, that would be nice. If you'd refrain from taking pictures, that would be very nice if you make sure that you give good birth and width to the paintings that are here. That would be very helpful too, these wonderful Rothko paintings. And especially if you haven't been here and this is your first time coming, I always invite people to come back during the day because it's a whole nother experience. And if you've only been here during the day, to come here in the evening in this kind of setting, it's another experience. So do come back, but mindful of that. And then the fourth P is presence. And part of this is to be present with each other. In a world that is so technology driven, this is an act of countercultural radicalism. It's by turning off the phone and silencing things, it does help with our presence with one another in our program tonight. So, with that said, I also want to say special thanks to uh, Spencer Logan who is uh, interpreting tonight. He's an American Sign Language interpreter and expert, and we're just grateful to have him here this evening uh, providing interpretation for us. So Spencer, welcome to the chapel. And one last little note of thanks. I want to thank my colleagues uh, Ashley Clemmer and Kelly Johnson, who are our program staff leaders. You'll see as you came in uh, both staff. We also have a guild here. A lot of people don't know we have a guild of what I'm going to to guesstimate 45, 50 people plus that volunteer at program events. Uh, During nice days, we oftentimes have a table set outside. They're doing tours and interpretation. If you're ever interested in that, on the program is is our website. It's another way to get involved in chapel life and help us extend our reach in the community. So can we give everybody that makes this thing happen, give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. So let me tell you a little bit about tonight's program and the series that this has fit into called The Concept of the Divine. We launched this series in the fall of 2016 with a very well-known Houstonian, uh, Dr. Bernay Brown from the University of Houston, who has done a lot of work on shame and grief and recovery. And we thought that she would be perfect because the topic is, what is your understanding of the divine And how has that changed over your lifetime? How has that influenced your vocational church choices and some of the deepest things that you care about in the world today? And we thought, wouldn't it be interesting just to invite people to come and share from a very personal standpoint, not fettered, not debated, just what does that mean to you? Because our thought was that as we listen to different people, we'll get some very different insights into that concept of the divine. And at the same time, they may articulate something that is in your heart or life experience you just never have heard or been able to articulate to set up a conversation. Our first, we did four of these presentations this last year. Brene, we've had poets. We've had Muslim, feminist, activists. Uh, we have had, um, we will have a NASA engineer who will be speaking um, uh, in the spring. And then following our program uh, this evening, we have a very interesting conversation between a Franciscan sister and a Jungian scholar. Now that should be very interesting on the concept of the divine. But it's again a way for us to open the invitation to to talk about the deepest meanings of spirituality and what we carry with us, and that we articulate in very different ways. So it's been a wonderful uh, uh, two year, beginning of a two year process. And so tonight we come here with our first of the offerings in this program season, uh, The Concept of the Divine, and Navajo's Perspective on the Reverence for Life, featuring Suzanne Benali. Let me tell you a little bit about Suzanne. She is currently the executive director and the first indigenous person to hold the position of cultural survival, an organization that advocates for indigenous people's rights and supports indigenous community self-determination Culture, and Political Resilience uh, that was founded in 1972. She's a Navajo and Santa Clara Tewa from New Mexico. Benali was the Associate Provost for Institutional Planning and Assessment, and Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs at Naropopa University in Boulder, Colorado, a core faculty member in Environmental Studies, and member of the President's Cabinet at the university. Uh, before she started Narapopa, she was the director of uh, education programs at, um, of, at the American Indian Science and Engineering Society and director of the Institute on Ethnic Diversity at the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education. We had dinner tonight, and I'm always uh, very jealous of academicians uh, because I think their jobs are so cool. And she was an academician who then became a director of a nonprofit. We never got into conversation tonight, Suzanne, of which is, which is harder, one side or the other. But Suzanne also brings, I think, that life vocational experience of seeing uh, the work, the activism work, the, the trying to move minds and ideas from so many different perspectives. So we're really blessed to have somebody with that kind of diverse experience. She's worked extensively with American Indian communities and her interests, teaching, and passions are focused on the relationship between land, spirituality, and people as reflected in stories and in environmental issues and indigenous rights. She is also no stranger to the Rothko Chapel. We first met in 2015, the fall of 2015, uh, as we were doing the pre-programming leading up to the 2015 Oscar Romero Award, our Human Rights Biennial Award. And when we met uh, that evening as we left this space, Suzanne said, and I'm gonna paraphrase, what a spiritual place the Rothko Chapel is. And I was fairly new to this institution, this community, and those words stuck with me because I thought, I don't know how often she's been to Houston, but that you don't usually put spiritual places in Houston always in the same sentence and the Rothko chaplain. It's always been in the back of my mind how do we get Suzanne Benali back here to the chapel. And I think the concept of divine became the perfect platform to help us uh, engage in a very deep conversation. Suzanne, we can't thank you enough for accepting our invitation to come back to the chapel. What we'll do, Suzanne will speak and then I'll be back on and we'll start a conversation and then we'll open it up to all of us in the room this evening. So can you help me welcome Suzanne Benali to the Rothko Chapel.
1: <clears throat> Thank you very much for those kind words. I, um, I do have some quite simple solutions of why I left academe and went to the nonprofit world. Um, and it's about walking the talk, so um, there are explanations. But good evening, everybody. It is really an honor to be here. And as David said, the last time I visited the Rothko Chapel, I just found this an amazing space and um, a place in which we can explore deep thought and deep reflections. And um, that for me, when we're able to do that and create those spaces, is about finding spiritual spaces. So, I'm very delighted to be back here this evening. I want to begin by introducing myself um, more cultural, um, and that's to say, I am Suzanne Benali. my maternal clan is the Kachini clan of the Navajo people, which is the Red House clan, and my paternal clan, the clan I was born for, is the the Naxaxi clan, the Bear clan of the Tewa people. For for Navajos, what's more important is who you belong to, than who you are. And um, so you always step back and recognize uh, your family, your community, your people, your ancestors. And and that name's who you are. But I would also like to begin tonight by asking everybody to do, do a small exercise, and it is about presence. Um, I'd like for you to close your eyes, if you will, for just a moment. And take a long deep breath, so inhale. Release, exhale. And use this as a moment to ground yourself in this space. We've been invited into the Rothko Chapel to be together to be in each other's presence and to recognize that the air we breathe is shared space and sacred space because air is sacred. Thank you. So I want to come back to this. Um, For the most part tonight, I'm going to share my story my work, my thoughts, what, what my journey has been that brings me to reflect on it here at the Rothko Chapel with all of you. But in doing this, I'm the storyteller and therefore you're the story listener. And what's important to me in this is as you take in words, you become part of the story too because you begin to connect thoughts, you begin to connect thinking, ideas, creativity, and that's important because as Navajo people, one of the things we understand is that words are sacred, and the air is sacred. So when I speak, I create a turbulence in the air, and you take in that movement of air. As Navajo people, we're very intentional and careful about how we speak, how we express ourselves, because our words have impact. They impact someone's emotions, they impact somebody's feelings, their thoughts, literally physically by sharing the same air, as well as as emotionally and mentally. So so we have regard for language and, and speech. But that's all part of this bigger story and this human story because we're sharing all of this kind of movement in the air and we're sharing words and thoughts and ideas. I thought a lot about how to tell my story tonight um, and, and what does the concept of the divine mean for me? And when I was asked to come up with a title for this, I thought about, well, I don't necessarily talk about the divine uh, based in my own cultural spirituality, but what what we do talk about, what I talk about, is how we maintain a reverence for life. And and what does that mean? So for Navajo people, and for most indigenous peoples and native peoples in, in this country, we understand that we are all related as living beings. So you'll hear the term often, all my relations. It's, it's everything. It's the plant world, the animal world, the natural world. And, and those things that we think aren't animate are animate. They're imbued with spirit and, and constantly moving. These are all our relationships. So we live within this web of relationships. And in that kind of, of relationship or relational world, you have uh, responsibility. So, as human beings and as Navajo, we emerged through five different worlds. We're now in the fifth world which which is the glittering world or the world of of sunlight. But in our migration, in our journey as human beings, in becoming the human beings we are today, we were guided by animals and, and insects and in each of these worlds, we were taught lessons about what it means to be a human being. So today, it is our responsibility to, to treat everything with a kind of respect and regard and dignity. Our role as human de- beings is about giving dignity to all living things. And that, that's a huge responsibility. So you don't go and do it every now and then. You don't necessarily have to go to sacred spaces, although we do have sacred sites where a lot of this work is done. But you do it in everyday life. It's about daily living, daily behaviors, daily thinking, daily planning. And in that way you maintain and sustain a web of relationships, and a web of kinships. So you often hear Native people talk about my brother, my brother bear, um, father sky, mother earth. Um, We refer to each other as our brothers and our sisters. And, And that's about the kind of regard for this kinship relationship that we have. And it asks of us then to do it in a particular way based on reciprocity. So relationships and reciprocity so reciprocity is, is that understanding of giving and being given back. So our relationship with land is very, very deep. There's, I've, I have a colleague who calls it an ensoulment to the land. And I, I understood this better when I thought about, in my own tradition, some of the things that we do. What does it mean to be ensouled to the land? What, it, what does it mean to have such a deep, close re- relationship with the natural environment, that every part of your body is some part of the earth? So when I, talk about my, when I talk about my liver, I'm talking about the coal in the earth, which is the earth's liver, because it serves as an aquifer, right? And, and, and purifies uh, water, much as our liver does. Um, the hairs on our body, are that of the grasses and the plants on earth. So there's that kind of a deep, close relationship. I am the land as the land is me. So, how then do we represent this kind of insolment um, to the land? And I, w- I was thinking about what this would mean um, for me, and I'm reminded that when a child is born, we bury the umbilical cord back into the earth, usually in a sheep corral in in your maternal uh, or your mother's um, ranch or, or farm. And you do that because you're returning to the earth. You're returning to the source of life. You're returning to what has given you life. So that child always comes back and returns, returns to the people, to the family, to Mother Earth. When a child is born, you put a child in the cradle board. And I don't know if you've seen the Navajo cradle board, but they're usually sort of two slats that form the back, and there's a footrest, and then there's an arch over over the cradle board and the child is held in by straps that cloth straps that crisscross across the body so every piece of that cradle board represents the natural earth the the cradle board is cut from a living tree and there's ceremony around asking for this wood but the idea is you want the child to be rooted in the earth rooted on the ground and grow tall towards the sky You want the child to understand the natural world, so you you create the rainbow over the child's um, head. It's, It's the arched piece. Because in the culture we understand that the deities travel across the rainbows. So you want the deities traveling across your child. You hold the child in by the lightning bolts. Which are the straps that crisscross the body? So this child, in many ways, is put it back into the womb of the earth in the cradle board. And um, a- another important piece of the cradle board is then, in shaping who the child is, you want the child to be extremely observant, not physical. Uh, so. You know, it served a utilitarian purpose, yes, but, you know, the child is in a cradleboard and has to be observant. And observation is so important in the culture because it's through observation that we've been taught by Mother Earth and and the natural world. So, you want the child to be able to do that. In Navajo, we have a term called pique hojo, which is, the most pure state of the natural environment untouched by man where the greatest learning occurs and the concept of hajo is this concept of balance and harmony so in the culture our life is about seeking this balance and harmony and it all comes back to relationships and reciprocity How do you maintain balance and harmony? We have songs, we have ceremonies, we have ritual traditions, we have art, we have creative thought, we have dances. Those are all ways in which we remember to remember who we are, and um, the teachings that have been given to us through our migration um, into today's world. And when I think about the Rothko Rothko Chapel and and um, all of this, I think about the role. And David and I were talking about this early, earlier. The role art has in connection to spirituality. How do we engage and connect to this highly creative process that is about a, a kind of search, a kind of seeking a kind of finding balance and harmony. And um, so art is important um, in the Navajo culture. You see the sand paintings, you see the rugs, you see the jewelry, Um, everything is about art and representation of something. But let me um, kind of come back to, to this web of relationships. And this concept of reciprocity. And let me fix my headpiece that slipped off. As as Native peoples, as as a Navajo, we're always in a constant relationship with the earth and the natural environment. And. Um, we're always walking this path of beauty, the beauty way. Uh, we have a lot of um, chants in our culture that talks about this this road, the good road, the red road in, in other traditions. And um, a road that represents a way of harmony and, and balance. So when you're out of balance, there is a way of um, bringing a person back into that balance through ceremonies, and usually a ceremony, the most intensive of our ceremonies, takes the individual all the way back to the beginning and back to that migration journey to restore the balance. Um, And and it's it's an understanding that this individual is ill not because that person is sick, but the community is out of balance and it's affected that person. So we all participate in that healing um, ceremony. So, all of these are about a very holistic way of looking at the earth, understanding our relationships, our, our roles, our responsibilities as human being. It's not linear by any means. We, um, our, our journey is very cyclical. Um, it, it's, it's much like the seasons. We're born springtime, crops, new crops come up. We grow and mature through the summer. We begin an aging process in the fall, and at winter we die. Well, that's very much the journey of of the human being as well. So again, it's deeply related to um, the natural environment. But also in, in our current lives, our contemporary lives, we understand our journey through a lifetime. I, I'm again thinking of um, a piece of art, the a basket the Navajos use as a wedding basket. I, if I don't know if you've seen one, but it's sort of a shallow-shaped basket. And the uh, weaving of the reeds begins in the center and it begins to spiral out. <coughs> and um, the spirals, are colored, there's colored bands. So at the very center, and this concept of the center is really important, because if you think of all the directions, we've got north, south, east, west, above, below, and the center. We've got our center, which is why I asked you to breathe in and ground yourselves at your center. We've got our migration, which we come up through the center in a particular place and location. But these these bands are, start with a very light colored and then they move out into um, a red and a black and sort of repeat themselves until the very outer rim is the light colored um, part of the basket. That basket is woven to remind us that that's life's journey. We're born at the center with this kind of innocence, and we go through the challenges of life. So we we hit those dark moments in life, which which poses um, whether it, whether it's danger or it's illness or or whatever it might be. Um, we have moments of birth and renewal, and um, but ultimately at the end, we reach that light-colored part of the basket, which is. Um, that which is greater than, than all of us, that which we just respect and um, give reverence to. But at the same time, we have rever- reverence for life and we honor life. So the concept of the divine for me is in everyday life, in our behaviors, our thinking, our planning, our actions, remembering to remember. Um, I go out every morning I I face the East, I offer a prayer, but this prayer in the early dawn is about asking Father Sky, asking to be remembered, to be recognized as a human being. This is who I am. And this concept of the asking, um, we ask for these things and um, You know, they're given to us. We don't assume we have them. We, we, uh, there's a, you know, it's through prayer and and through ritual and ceremony that you ask for these blessings. Because as human beings, we're probably the most, the least important living thing on the earth. And we're probably the most pitiful thing on the (laughs) earth. And um, so we've got a lot of asking to do. Um, But, I also don't want to romanticize all of this. That's the culture, and that's the culture I grew up in, and that's what grounds me in my concept of the divine. But it brings me to the realities as a native person um, that we live with. And we have endured centuries of um, conquest and colonization, of uh, genocidal practices, of forced assimilation, of displacement, and removal from our homelands. In my family, it's only been five generations. So it, it's, there's my mother, myself, my mother, my great-grandmother, and my great-great-grandmother. And it was that great-great-grandmother who was um, on the long walk, which was the forced removal of the Navajo people Um, to a concentration camp at Bosque Redondo. And it's that great, great, see, am I saying this right? Great, great grandmother who who made the journey back on foot. Um, So it's recent history, especially with families at that time. I mean, the generations weren't that long. And um, that's all still very much lived memory for us um, as Native people. Our communities face a lot of social economic problems. There's um, immense poverty. There's fractured families, fractured communities from alcohol and drug and different forms of abuses um, in our communities and families. And all of this begins to really challenge who we are as a people. The On top of that, we live being removed and and not all tribes went back to their original homelands. The Navajos did. But we also live on a wealth of natural resources. So we've had to deal with the extractive industries um, from uranium to coal mining to oil and gas now. And um, our, our homelands have become national sacrifice areas, in the interest of um, these extractive industries and um, the federal government. Yet as a people, despite all of this, we remain very strong and resilient. And we continue a cultural way of life. And it's important to us to maintain the language and to pass this all on, because it's about sustaining life. And anything we do today, we always do in the interest of the, the several generations. Some tribes say seven generations. Um, but we want to assure a future and a future full of, of life um, for our young people. And it's that kind of resilience that gives me hope and courage and personal resilience to do the work that I do um, and to educate um, about indigenous peoples, as well as advocate for the rights of indigenous peoples. So let me kind of shift now, giving you that sort of background of, of who I am and, and where my source comes from, and to talk about the scope of work that I do today. My work six, seven years ago really expanded from from domestic-based work to international-based work and I um, begin to lead um, an international human rights, indigenous rights organization that works in many countries with many indigenous communities, primarily around issues that they're facing today and their struggles. And most of those are around um, extractive industries. So it gets challenging because I, I witness in many countries, probably what my great grandparents experience around persecution. Um, as a Native American in this country today, we've, we've been able to establish treaty rights and, and so forth with the federal government and a government to government relationship. But I work in communities where you stand up for your rights and you get shot. And um, I. I often think about the early morning I get a call from Kenya and someone's pleading with me to please look at this um, cell phone video and help them because a young 13-year-old goat herder was shot with machine guns and and the video captures it. It was sent to me um, because he crossed the boundaries and didn't know he had crossed the boundary. And, um, you know, this is a community that uh, is struggling to maintain its traditional lands and its right to um, herd goats and have an expanse of land. And who's taking the land away is a conservation group. And, you know, so it it gets complex really fast, and it's painful you know, I I couldn't watch the video a second time because I realized I was watching um, close to a live video. That takes its toll because you begin to wonder with all of these issues, how do we keep doing this work? How, How do we find that courage and that strength? How do we speak truth to power? How do we use our position to to make a difference um, for the lives of indigenous peoples. And then I take it a step further, and um, where there's this young boy being shot for crossing a boundary, I think about the African-American man in this country who is shot by police for crossing probably a different kind of boundary. And the issues become very connected for me. And of course they would, because I come from a culture that understands these connections, even in their problems. So, I believe we do have to understand these connections. They're they're not isolated stories, but they're about who we are as human beings, and the kind of regard we have for life, and the kind of web of relationships that honors life that we want to maintain and the kind of reciprocity that we want to demonstrate, and the kind of dignity we want to confer um, for all living things. And I would go on to talk about climate change and conferring dignity and so forth, but I, I think I'm, I'm running out of time here. Um, but, but as we grow, and as I've grown in my journey and the work that I do, one of the blessings of life is that I've matured. And you know, you, you acquire hopefully wisdom as you, as you grow and reach some of those outer circles. Probably 40 years ago, I know I would have been so angry. I'd have been just as willing to pick up a gun too and fight back that way. But as you, as you become more calm, as you settle down, you become more wise, I think we understand differently where we need to go and how we need to do this work. And certainly, it's not in sort of a dual relationship, but it's how do we all do this inclusively as human beings together and address these issues. Again, because they're all very connected. So, uh, I'm not sure how I'm doing in t- with time. Should I, should I stop here and move into? We can move into a conversation. Okay. Okay, why don't we do that? And then I can come back to these points based on David's um, discussion points as well as um, things the audience would like to raise. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So, so let me just say, in Navajo we say we don't really have a word for thank you, but means with appreciation because it's based on recipro- reciprocity.
0: I think i want to take a deep breath. Just hold it for a minute. Let it out. You've given us a lot to meditate on. Maybe we should just spend the next 45 minutes in silence thinking about this. <laughs> You know, I had a thought that came to mind very contemporary, kind of taking the contemporary to something very deep. You used the term in soul to the land, I think if I heard you correctly. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the move to the contemporary is what happened that we're all very well aware of with Bears Ears National Monument, Escalante National Monument with President Trump's order to take back, take back, and I'm using that in quotation marks, but uh, to reverse an act that President Obama had done right toward the end of his um, presidency. So I got to thinking, if the practice had been thought through with this principle of insult to the land, would there have been a different outcome? Would there be a different approach to how we continue to so often to practice this kind of colonial behavior that seems so removed from this concept of being sold to the land. But what if that was the lens through which we looked at a lot of these decisions that we make? Would we have very different outcomes? Would an act like that even be able to happen?
1: I would, I would hope that we would have different outcomes, and I suspect that we would. I, w- when I teach in environmental studies I'm always teaching students that we all have a place on, on the earth and, and we all come from somewhere and at one time we probably were all tribal peoples very deeply connected to the land and indigenous in, in that way to the land but what's happened is this over time and history the separation from land and, um, and we've built institutional structures that further separate and keep us separated from land. So in, in you know this quest for natural resources and, and that's what's behind opening up uh, national monuments is um, the opportunity to develop. So this whole concept of, of development um, I often th- is supported by these institutional frameworks, so our, our mm-hmm. capitalist economy for one, mm-hmm. and w- we can name many others. But I have I have a friend Jerry Manders, and he and I have talked a lot of uh, of this in in the past, and he certainly has written about it. Is what is this really about? It's yes, it's about development. But it's also about a search for something. And um, I think at the end of the day, people are searching for something, but in the wrong way, mm-hmm. whether we're searching for that you know the ultimate material, goods, um, we're still in search for something, something we've lost and we're trying to recapture. Mm-hmm. But if, yes, if we were connected to the land, And in relationship with it there would be a very different outcome
0: that's really interesting I have a friend of mine who does a lot of work in um, drug and alcohol recovery he said sometimes we lose the reality that uh, uh, addiction is also about a spiritual journey there's something lost right there's a void but it's a it's a it's trying to discover something unfortunately so Mm -hmm. often what the outcome is not very positive, right? It's, it's uh, in that search maybe misdirected or misguided. Very destructive things can happen both to one individual but to the collective together. And I, and I wonder if, if some of that is that, yeah, it's, it's sort of a journey, but it's, it's because something's been lost, but how do you d- rediscover it? Mm-hmm. And this may be a bit of a leap, but as we become increasingly urbanized people, right, there are more people moving to cities. Cities are growing. To some extent, yeah, we don't live even in a single family home with a garden anymore and a backyard or a tree. We live in high rises and, uh, you know, communal living situations. Do you ever worry about that? That we get even further from this idea of being sold to the land or that, that there's, there's so much loss that, it's really hard to come back to this kind of basic principle.
1: Yes, and, and I've also had a colleague who's talked a lot about how we create a psychology of place. And um, he's talked about his psychology of place in Manhattan and ways hmm. in which um, he, he seeks. In, in that kind of space because that in many ways is, well, that's where he's grown up and um, that's the world he knows, not sort of living out on the land. And I, I found that a really interesting way to, to think about how we create space and maybe it, it's not the land itself, but it's something to represent or perhaps replace land. It's hard to imagine in in concrete and mortar and steel but, you know, I I had to sort of listen to to what he was explaining to me. I I think we also have created a lot of myths around the land that, in, in some ways, has separated us. We've certainly created a myth of the wilderness because the wilderness is a place that we can go, um, uh, it's untouched by man and and we can, um, it's justified a lot of removal of of native peoples from that land, but it's a place where we can, in a sense, go be reverent. Um, But that's an interesting, another kind of disconnection because if you're really looking, it's a separation of land and and humans. so, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it's sort of coming back around to um, how we find and create new, split, new spaces mm. to be reverent and perhaps because we can't access land, we, we recreate something.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I know, I think one of the maybe greatest gifts of this place, the Rothko Chapel, is not just the interior, it's the exterior. Here we are in the middle of the city, between here, the Manil, there's this just wonderful kind of oasis uh, away from uh, the concrete and the buildings. So mm-hmm. that sense that, uh, how, and, yet, and it's almost um, part of our DNA of the need for that, that space, right? That mm-hmm. it's 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 part of our own spirituality, uh, and then and, and so there's that longing, even though we may not know exactly what we're longing for.
1: That that's <coughs> right, and and you see um, people building on rooftops, gardens, mm-hmm. and um, I've had students who have gone into Denver and built these gardens that come off the walls of buildings. And it was another way of creating space and some connection to the natural world.
0: Yeah. So you're a journeyer. We've talked a little bit about this. You were talking this today. You grew up on uh, Navajo land, reservation land. And I was thinking, hmm, from that to Naropa College, that's quite of a university. That's quite of mm-hmm. a journey, right? Um, how has your journey? How, do you understand that as also a spiritual journey? Have there been elements kind of in self-discovery and uh, things that when you leave a place, you go, I'm really glad I'm leaving that behind, and yet you find out, no, that's exactly what I really want to come back to?
1: I have to say, there are days when I ask myself, um, or tell myself, this all has to add up to something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am... I think my journey through many different types of work and places has played a role in um, my hopefully acquiring a kind of wisdom from experience. And so Naropa University, for those of you who don't know the institution, is a Buddhist-inspired institution in Boulder, Colorado and I taught there for, I sure remember, it was 12 or 16 years. It was an interesting place to be, and I I stayed for several reasons. Um, One, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and part of my background is in alternative experiential-based education. And I was looking for a, a practice of education that somehow resonated with that and uh, Naropa University has this philosophy of contemplative education, which also resonated with me um, from an indigenous um, background. So I went to work there, and I found in that space an interesting and good sense of community, but also probably one of the craziest places I've ever been in my life and worked, and Also a place where students though were were there seeking something and searching. And in that process of seeking and searching, these are probably some of the the most creative and risk-taking students I've ever taught. And there was something really nice about that. And um, a learning process that was really based on contemplation and understanding oneself in relationship to the world mm. and uh, so, so in my classes I very deliberately ask students in environmental studies there are very idealistic students who are out to save the world so you know they went from A to Z in their idealism but I asked, asked students to stop and how do you kind of drop through this you because first you have to know yourself and understand yourself, and this is a very indigenous concept as well, and emerge at the other end to be able to be in relationship and relate to other things. And um, that just was a nice place to to teach from Mm -hmm. from those types of um, um, perspectives. So, and then I found, as I began to learn more about Um, Buddhism. Some very direct relation to Navajo um, concepts and beliefs. And um, every now and then I'd be listening to a teaching and I would be sitting there thinking, that's exactly how we think as Navajo people. So there were these connections that were important to me. Then of course a Tibetan based um, religion and practice, I should say practice, that came out of a land-based people, of course, there would be those connections. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, those connections are very interesting. Um, I've always been intrigued by why do we have another part of our behavior is differentiation rather than finding what we hold in common. We may express it different ways, but we celebrate that commonness. But there's there's a part of human tendency to differentiate and divide rather than in common. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think that uh, growing up in in a Christian kind of tradition where things like music and art, uh, nature were part of our kind of uh, uh, cosmology in a way, uh, were, were doors that opened relations to others. Yet so often their doors that close because I have to differentiate rather than think, and it becomes a very big spiritual uh, uh, kind of war. And I was just I was reading recently um, a new book that came out about Chief Joseph, you know, one of the Nez Perce <laughs> leaders, and he was uh, being asked the question, "Why do you not want churches?" This is a time where he's again trying to get back to homeland. And there's the, the, the colonialists, the farmers, the popes coming west, settling the Walawa Valley and out in eastern Oregon, Washington. And he said, They will teach us to quarrel about God as the Catholics and Protestants do. We may quarrel with men about things on this earth, but we never quarrel about God. We don't want to learn that. <laughs> and I thought that was a, just a beautiful quote that so often we do that differentiation piece and then we divide and then it becomes very systemic, right? Mm-hmm. And then we practice it and it's, it's, I don't know if you've, how you kind of, we're working with students like that, that are even in your own life is, you know, how do we find unity? How do you find that? But in a way that doesn't diminish each person's individual story, in tradition, like you tell your story, mm-hmm. you know, it's not unity without diversity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, how do, you, how, how do you work with people that are on those quests and seekers?
1: Well, I, I would say it, it's unity with diversity and difference. And I, I think it's important to to recognize difference. But if you're recognizing this, in you know, back to this web of relationships, then um, it, it gives you, it, you still know that there's a relationship you have to maintain, and, and there's a way in which you do you are able to connect with that person, um, and recognize the difference. Doesn't mean you have to be, you know, we're all the same, we're all one, but, um but but there's a relationship. And as a human being if, and again I'm sort of drawing on my own tr- mm-hmm. cultural tradition, you, if if being in reciprocity is really important then you have to figure out wh- where's that give and take and um, what do I have to offer this person and, and what does that person have to offer me and how does that then put us in a relationship of balance and harmony. And um, students, so this is kind of going back to you know, kind of a Buddhist concept, but it's always the ego that gets in the way. And um, so you know, how do stu- I ask students, how do you suspend ego to, to, to look at a different paradigm of, of living and behaving? Um, that's not about dominance or, or being better than, than someone else. That's just kind of going back to those fundamental tools and understandings that, that I try to draw on mm-hmm. in teaching. Uh, students are real willing, at least at Naropa, are real willing to go there with that. But they're there at that institution for that purpose, too. So sure. it's real different than when I taught you know, at the University of Colorado or Denver, it's a very competitive world. And um, it, it's hard to open up these types of conversations. Why is that? Students are, um, they're, they're thinking about their careers, they're competing, starting to compete with each other for that job market. They, um, they know they're on a grade system and will be evaluated. I mean, we have all those structures in place that create those types of competition, and um I often so at Europa, I ask students to sit in a circle I always try to to model the circle and um, you know, you get into a big university of three hundred students, and they're all seated like this, mm-hmm. and there there's then it's just this one on one dynamic so I think how we do things, our practices, are, are a huge piece of, of shaping and changing the spaces we create.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're gonna open up for conversation in just a second, but one, one, one other thought that's kind of been percolating, and I think it's in this, out, this, this ego, you, you alluded, talked a little bit about colonialism and the impact on indigenous communities, and that's a global phenomenon, as you, mm-hmm. as you well know I, in that sense. But in kind of today's world, as you're working with uh, communities of people all over the globe, really, where do you see, what, what are the forms of kind of uh, modern-day colonialism that continue, which I think are driven by ego? Right? I think it's about power, ego, mm-hmm. and control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ha- you know, that breaking those apart, there might be hope, but we still have to struggle through a lot of that today and name it, um, I think. So where do you see some of those, the modern forms of colonialism today? Because I'll also do, yeah. ju- nobody would ever want to claim to be a colonialist, you know, that's just not really in vogue. And yet, uh, I see some outcomes that looks rather familiar.
1: Well, this is a big discussion. <laughs> um, so, we still live under all of the colonial structures that were put in place. That, that's you know, the, the key, the fundamental issue. And the kinds of practices and behaviors. And um, colonialization was based on, in part on racism. So those kinds of attitudes towards people and and forms of racism that still play out today that enable a government or a multinational uh, corporation to come in and take land Mm -hmm. away from people, to remove people from lands, that subjugates them to a particular um, way of life, usually working in those mines. That, that's all forms of, of, still forms of colonialization th- that is occurring. Um, I, I'm careful though, so today the buzzword is decolonize. Decolonize this, decolonize that. And I'm starting to get confused by what does this term really mean? Hmm. Um, because it, it begs the question then is, is how do we understand colonization? And, uh, but we still live a legacy um, of colonization and um, it's just built into our institutional structures.
0: Mm-hmm. And people like, I mean, from your narrative today, you're so multi multi faceted in that sense of you're you're an interpreter, you're a bringer of message, you're a bringer of insight. Um, you have to be you have to be multilingual, you have to be multicultural because you're in that you're in a world that I'm not in every day, having to do that. Interpretation. Does it ever get exhausting?
1: It's very exhausting. <laughs> I think when I I think. I really aged when I took on this job and sort of took on the world's issues. Um, no, it, it is exhausting. I, it, the nature of the issues, it, it just mm. pulls something from you. Um, it's, it's hard not to get disillusioned and you have to find ways, you know, I have to find ways to nurture myself, sustain myself. Um, and to maintain hope. And, but again, I've, I've got a cultural background I can draw on. I, I can go home, go back to my community, to my family. I can go back and be a part of ceremony. All that nourishes me um, mm-hmm. in, in these ways. And as I said, as you get older, you, you know, you shift and change, and you understand how you're working to change these structures and these institutions and the kind of um, violence um, against all things. And, um, but it, it's, it's frustrating and it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about resilience and hope. And there's, you know, we, we're living in an era of incredible dismantling a lot of the protections that we've worked very hard to put in place, and that concerns me a great deal. I mean, in fact, it, it's anguish. Uh-huh. Um, the, the bare ears right. roll back in, in the Escalante staircase. Um, that's pure anguish because that's opening up sacred land for development and for the profit of a few. And, um, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about it all week, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And as you note, it has such deep spiritual dimensions, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: In that sense of the divine, or however we want to call it, but it's deeply spiritual. And so some people don't mm-hmm. understand that, because they think, oh, it's just land. Mm-hmm. But it's not just land, is it?
1: No, it's, it's us. You know, so you're, you're opening up yourself for this kind of exploitation. It, it's, it's also for me the question of, do we want to sustain life on, on this planet? And if we want to sustain life, then what do we need to start doing differently? And how do we do it together? Even, in, and we talked a little bit about this, even from the multiple positions we sit in, in the work, we don't always have to agree, but life, sustaining life, should be the most important goal we have. Mm -hmm. And um, so how do we do that? And and I think that's the question we all have to hold. Great. Let's open
0: up, we've got a, why don't we start right down here on the front? We have a couple of microphones, so let's make sure we get a mic over so everybody can hear. Okay. It's on. Mm-hmm. It's, on. It's, on. it's on we can hear you Yeah.
2: Okay, you can hear me mm-hmm.
0: Suzanne, it sounds like you are for life you have that uh, philosophical position and I applaud you wholeheartedly but what I want to know is you talk about the uh, Navajo perspective of life well reverence for life what about uh, the uh, um, morality ethics and uh, more, more
1: is, uh, of the uh, the Navajo religion. Of the Navajo religion? Yeah. Well, everything I just talked about is the Navajo religion. It, it's it's the it's the concept of spirituality. Um, everything is about affirming and sustaining life, and. Um, as I said a good life a life of balance and harmony with all living things so so that those are the fundamental values and understandings and ethics of um, of Navajo spirituality
0: Mm -hmm. yes here's a question let's get a right here on this side I'm gonna go back and forth and right here on the second row does somebody have a microphone right here here we go coming around.
2: Hi, hi. How much time do I have? Does it have to be a question? Yeah. <laughs> does it have to be a question? Mm-hmm. It does?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I,
2: I does it have to be a question? No, you can make a comment. Can I tell a story? Sure. Um, oh my God, I have so many stories. I don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I came in here today. I, I came here for like three days and um, I showed up here today around like noon and I came, here by my, I came here by myself and I was really lucky. I got in here and I was the only person here. And um, this uh, woman walked me here and she said, man, you know, I, I'm really upset, you know, she's like, she's like, she told me, she's like, do you have any, she asked me, she's like, do you have any, are you connected with any Native American, do you have like a Native American lineage? And I said, well, I don't think I do by blood. My parents are Taiwanese. Um, they did meet in Alaska or uh, in Nebraska, and you know, then they conceived me in California. But I feel connected. I feel very much connected to what's going on there right now. Um, and you know, I said, I told her this. I said, people are going to need to get bored. People are going to need to work through. They're out, they're gonna, there's gonna need to be some kind of a playing out. And if there's gonna need to be any kind of acceleration, then I agree, we're gonna have to go deeper. And um, it's a returning to the center. So okay, anyway, so I came in here today and then I uh, meditated here. I did, I, tried, I did my best to do a Zazen sit. I haven't sat Zazen in a while. And then I came here um, and then I started to, I started to read the paintings, because from what I remember, in um, in, uh, in I went to Cooper Union in New York City, and I studied art with Lisa Lally and Mike Essel, the design direct, the design chair there. And um, I, Mark Rothko was, you know, by far my favorite artist. I dreamt of coming here um, since I was since I was a student, and I remember. Um, getting out of the dorm and the first thing I, I wanted to draw was just this big black circle on a, on a newsprint, piece of newsprint. So anyway, I, I would go to the museum and I would um, read the paintings. I would just stand there and be like, what do I see in this? You know, it's kind of like reading a Rorschach mm-hmm. test. Mm-hmm. And so I, I came in here and I started to look at the paintings and the pictures were starting to come out. And the first one, immediately in that one, I saw this um, woman on the plains, you know, and she could have been, like, in America or in Mongolia, and she had, like, long pants <laughs> and, like, long, and, like, a long garb, you know, and she had kind of a big hat, like, an Orthodox Jewish hat, and the center I saw, like, a fountain. You know, it was this big, massive, like, a Buddha. and. Um, And then on the left, I think there was another female guardian. At some point this this couple walked in and the the woman smiled at me and she sat down in front of that painting. And then her partner walked by me and smiled at me and sat down in front of that painting. And it's crazy because when I was down in Peru, in Pucallpa, I saw in Pablo Pomaringo's painting um, a king in... uh, His cape was covered in gems, and he was walking down this, like a carpet like this. He was walking down this carpet, his back was towards the audience, and he was approaching this palace in the distance. And I was always that female guardian there, and that spot was empty. There was no one sitting in that spot meditating in the morning.
0: Let me do this. Just to make sure because we've got other hands and other people to have. Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll, me, I'll
2: breeze through all the paintings.
0: But no, that? we can't do all the paintings tonight because <laughs> we, we we've only got about twenty more minutes. So let me do this, so. Okay. Because I think it's important that let me let me let's just make sure others here. But I think what's important is um, finding the place like this where you can have this kind of engagement right I mean to have this kind of engagement is is so important and I think uh, I was thinking about how to you know what Suzanne's talking about is finding that invitation which you don't get so often to go deep to have this uh, just really opera invitation not prescribed as to the outcome right I think it's colonialism is worse as I invite you but I gonna tell you what the outcome mm-hmm. is but to have, that, to have that engagement, that spiritual conversation, uh, part of the genius of this place is that if you notice, and you really helped me to remind me that when you come into the Rothko Chapel, you are only, I think it's 12 inches from the little bars that you see between you and the wall. How many art places can you, how many places in the world are you invited to get that close? And part of that getting close is uh, as you do that walk, right, and you enter into this conversation, you start to see the brush strokes on the canvas, right? You see where the canvas, the painting, the frame is nicked a little bit. Suddenly it becomes a very humanistic, very kind of enterprise. It suddenly starts to connect rather than to divide. And and I think that uh, a lot of what Suzanne, you've got me thinking about is you keep coming back to this idea of connection, connectionalism, the the affirmation that we're connected, not divided, that sap of the tree, right? As you get close Mm -hmm. to the tree, you see the sap or you see the bug in the bark. It's alive, there's something life. And yet so often what we do is we, we, we don't make that, we almost take that and push it afar and we stand afar so we don't even get that intimate engagement. But it seems that's so important to what you, you what you're talking about tonight mm-hmm.
1: it it is and, and I would add as as I'm listening to you talk is um, the, the space that that you found by being here today that enables you to be um, sort of highly intuitive and highly creative and those are, um, those are very important concepts um, for um, indigenous peoples um, is to be able to, to do that. So, you know, I, I was listening to you as you talked about that. So it's that mm-hmm. engagement, but at the same time, you know, something else, um, in terms of your own perception ability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Other questions? I guess I, uh, there's like three. Let's, let's go to that side, on this side, since we were over here. We'll go outside and then work our way up back forth. Yes, sir.
1: Suzanne, could you speak to the spiritual component of birth and of death within your of faith and the faith of your community? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm having a little bit of a hard time hearing. I think
0: it was the spiritual, spiritual component of birth and death. Is that correct?
2: That's correct.
0: Okay. So the spiritual component at birth and the spiritual component at death in your community.
1: Well, um, so, so birth is understood as, um, boy, it, it's really complex and, and it's, it's really conveyed in the language, but let me kind of stumble through here. It, it's um, there. There's stages of becoming human, of of gaining certain kinds of awareness and knowledge, so that at your arrival um, into this world, you're already imbued with with some of those qualities, and um, your, your birth then is is to begin this journey through life um, that I that I keep talking about so birth is celebrated it it's it's um, it's the continuation it it's new life it's and um, um, I I'm death as an Navajo we don't talk very much about death um, you know it it's you know, it's an understanding that you're joining the spirit world, and um, there are some tradition, indigenous, native traditions, that prepare you for that journey, um, and uh, help you to journey well in, into the spirit world. Um, Navajo people, though, have always had a, a sort of distant regard for death, so when somebody dies at one time, um, it was handled by a couple of people who were asked to do that, and then they went through ceremony when they returned. It was, um, there's just a lot of belief that, that, that you don't engage with death. So the home was burned, and, and all the possessions were burned, and um, you know the person journeyed on. And it's very different than my Pueblo tradition, my Tewa tradition, where um, um, death is, is very much, you know, the body's kept in the home and prepared for the journey and prayed over, and um, there's a real four day ritual to send this person mm-hmm. off. So, so, very two different traditions, but from the Navajo side of me, um, a, a very distant uh, regard for death. And, and part of that is about, um, there are things we're just not to know. We, we understand this person joins the spirit world and there are spirits all around us. But as human beings, we can't unpack those mysteries of life. They're, they're there to be the mysteries of life, and death is one of those. But, but in, in the cycle, from if, if you look at the cycle of life through the natural world, it's just part of that natural mm-hmm. process of, of life, aging, and death.
0: It also sounds like mm-hmm. a very communal process. I was trying to think, you know, as you were talking about mm-hmm. the, um, the young baby, right, and that attentiveness and how all that is done, and ceremony. We, we, I, I, sometimes we live so very in Western thinking, too. We're very individualistic. So these life markers and journeys become very removed from community and very Mm -hmm, removed from mm -hmm. that shared, again, that's coming back to your point, Mm -hmm. that shared piece that we all are going to walk that journey. Mm -hmm. And yet we individualize these things, and then you find people dying alone Mm -hmm. or having a child growing alone, not with with this larger web. And uh, is it fair to say that Navajo life, that all these things are very communal?
1: Yes, community <clears throat> is very important um, in, in most native cultures and, and um, in Navajo. So you're absolutely right. And and part of community again is about these relationships and the relationship of a community. But and and the celebration because you want you you know you want to walk on, on the good road, you mm-hmm. know, the, the path of beauty mm-hmm. or the beauty way we call it in Navajo. And um, so, you know, for a child growing up, you celebrate every aspect of their life. Um, you know, their, their birth, their um, graduation from preschool, their you know, graduation <laughs> from high school. Uh-huh. But, but it's all celebrated because you're supporting that child through life.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, other question. Um, okay, in all fairness, we're going to go on this side of the aisle. <laughs> And then we'll go back on this side. We're in a season of, of darkness in a, in a chapel of dark uh, pictures and in a time of darkness, and you've spoken of hope. Where do you see hope, and how are you to talk about it from your tradition?
1: So I kind of keep cycling back around and using the same language. Um, so repetition is very important in the culture. Um, The so, I see hope really ground, again, really grounded in um, this understanding of what does it mean to be human and to maintain these relationships. And um, that's what we have to keep striving for. The, so I, I I see hope when we are, you know, when when children are smiling in our community and they're understanding the clan system and they're speaking the language that conveys all of these meanings. And at the same time they're being, you know, educated um, so that they can thrive and interact in a contemporary world. Um, All of those things are hope to me because they're about affirming life. The, there was a second part to your question, just kind of lost it. How does it come through your tradition? And is a, a part of your spiritual? Yes, yes. So, um, boy, th- this is hard to talk about, but, but it's really, it, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I keep coming back to the same language. Hope is about, living this goodness of life. It's about living in the beauty way and um, that, that has to be about hope because as human beings we're, we're human beings and, and you know we can fail and we can leave the, the right road and, and you know we can um, do wrong things and so forth. And so the culture has all kinds of lessons built in to help you, you know, walk the beauty way or or be on the right road. Um, But we also have the trickster figures in Mm. in the culture that remind us of our condition of human beings. And and we've got other kinds of, of stories that remind us of um how to behave as human beings so the the culture just inherently i guess we don't have a word that really says hope but it but it's just implicit in all of these understandings but today as as sort of a contemporary yeah, person yeah. you know I, I think about hope i i have i have hope in the children always and that's just one of my greatest joys is and it's probably why I became an educator, is, is the children, because they continue. I mean, they're the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you were talking and another question, but it's, it's, that piece is fascinating to me because we talk a lot about, at a place like this, about practice. So you mentioned getting up in the morning, you have certain rituals or practices you do to sustain and to affirm being and gratitude and all the things that come with that, um, that's sustaining that sense of balance, um, getting up in the morning with a sense of anticipation, uh, and I, I like what you say, you know, so it, I, I, I'm anticipating this, so I might be off, <laughs> but just being around kids once in a while is just, it's necessary, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's that mm-hmm. part of that practice that it seems like as you're talking, I'm thinking, you just couldn't get a, through a day or at least a week without being around kids. Because that's right. that part of that practice of right. sustainability right. of your soul, yourself, right?
1: You know, it, it's, 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 it's things growing and beginning their journey and on their journey. So, you know, it could be children, it could be plants, you know, your garden, um, all of that. I, I think that's about sustaining life, and mm-hmm. nurturing it. And, and that's where I see hope.
0: That's where you see hope. Mm-hmm. See, I had a hand over here on the end, so we're going to work on the end on this side, right in the middle. Hands up. There we go. This is a tough job. I this moderating questions, and there's so many. It's hard. It's hard to see because yeah. the
2: lights are blinding. Um, it seems as our, 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 as our society uh, becomes more removed from the land, there are some people that only know how to have an exploitive relationship with the land, and that's all they know, is just how to exploit it, draw out resources, like you pointed out with Bears Ears and, uh, and the other national monument. And I'm just curious to know, how do we offer those people a new perspective, or maybe even healing, how do we offer that to them?
1: That's, Dave and I just had a long conversation about this, this very um, question that you're raising. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I. So, so this all gets complex really, really quickly because even in even in my own tribe, our tribal government made the decision to buy a large coal-fired um, coal plant, a coal mine, and plant. And it's one that for 30, 40 years has totally depleted um, coal and um, just destroyed a large, large portion of land. And it was almost shocking to me that the tribe would decide to do this. But it was, it was doing it because uh, of economic development and it saw the opportunity. Because if you have communities living in such um, impoverished state and these conditions, the tribe needs a source of revenue and and saw it in in the coal plant. And at the same time, and and I'll circle back to your question, this coal plant is, um, it's used up coal. There is no more, it's very subgrade coal that's left. And um, so the wisdom of the tribe in this, and at that point in time, it's changed now with, with the new administration, um, uh, coal-fired power plants were closing. And you, know, you had all the EPA regulations that um, were challenging for these coal um, plants. So it really raises then the question of um, the integrity to sustain culture and um, at the same time, people's lives um, are, are at stake. And so it gets complex really fast. And in the community I'm from, which is where the uh, coal plant or the coal mines are located, there was a lot of divisive discussion around this. You you had the elders and community-based people who raised the question about the culture. We shouldn't be doing this um, we're only taking on a kind of internalized oppression and becoming the perpetuator mm-hmm. um, and but then there were the workers whose only source of livelihood and income having been removed from traditional subsistence um, livelihoods who now have worked for several generations mm-hmm. at these coal plants so it so, so, that's sort of the question at the center is how do you get all these different perspectives and experiences and reasons why people support or don't support or somewhere in between to come together and, and really sort of problematize this and find the solutions um, to it. And so, you know, I'm sort of jumping around on the margins and what about renewable energies you know, there, there are other models, and you know we can, we can look for them. But we also have to sort of step back and realize for Native peoples, this is centuries of dispossession. This is centuries of facing genocide. So, um, it, it really raises the question of um, what really are the choices that people have and um, we now have rights and we've got um, um, the, the sovereignty and, and self-determination. And if we exercise those truly, then it is to be able to develop our land. But that again then comes in conflict with sort of these cultural values. So I don't know the, que- the answer to that question yet. I, I've been trying to... To figure it out, and David and I were talking about this, and you know, I was I was thinking about um, someone I heard talk about how, as a community, whether it's a local community or, or a different formation of a community, do we have people problematize the issue, and from their different perspectives, not asking everybody to to share the same agenda, but from their different positions, ask them, how can you be part of the solution from that position? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a way to, if if anything, open up communications around it.
0: We've got time Mm -hmm. for one more formal question in here, but then remember we have a reception so we can continue the conversation. And we're gonna go to this side, and this is the last formal question for the evening. Um, when you were speaking about um, the symbolism in the crib and the rainbow over the uh, crib, you mentioned the deities that walk over it. Uh, what role do those deities play in your culture and in uh, your society?
1: So we we have many deities. Um, um, and the deities, um, are, oh boy, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think about how to explain this. Um, the deities are understood to be you know, first woman and first man and um, in the, the cultural mythology, the, these figures that brought the world into existence and um, um, begin to sort of expand, so you know you have first man and you have first woman. Um, but you also have corn man and corn women, so those deities get represented in the natural world as well. So deities play a, a, a very important role. They, they've, they've given us life, but, but not in the sense that, that you might think about in a, in a sort of Christian perspective. Um, we we emerged through these worlds, and, and the m- mythology gets created along the way about coming into existence. Um, and those those ancient ones who who um, gave us the teachings from their journey and, and that migration journey, to, in many ways, are the deities that we're talking about. And um, you know, we, we, today we have four sacred mountains, and this is kind of an important concept mm-hmm. um, in the culture, is the importance of place and geographic place. So for Navajo people, we come from this particular place, it, it's our emergence site. And we've got the, we're bounded by the four sacred mountains, and our deities have retired into these mountains. So they get represented, and, you know, again, the, the old age, old to old age, and they get represented by the, um, the snowfall that becomes the white hair on, on these mountains. Um, the kind of mineral or gem you find in those mountains, so you know, if you find turquoise or um, um, abalone or, or different types of shells, well we understand then that deity to be decorated. And so we emulate that decoration. It's why you find Navajos wearing a lot of jewelry. Often is mm. is they're um, emulating that. Um, and the deities are there; they're, they're always present, and they are present in everyday life through these teachings. And the you know, and, and we hold ceremonies in which we um, we connect with the deities. So the Yebiche is our most elaborate healing ceremony, and it's the one ceremony that representation of the, these deities come out to dance, and they're they're both the sacred, but the, but they're also the tricksters, and the and they, they imitate human behavior, so you have a pantheon of um, figures dancing, representing you know talking God and and. Um, first man and first woman and, and so forth, but then at the tail end you always have the clown in a sense, they wouldn't, in Africa, we wouldn't call it the clown, mm-hmm. but you know this is the person who's just full of mischief and does it all wrong and mocks the gods and, and so forth. So, so deities are, are um, um, part of everything in everyday life but as well reside in sacred places.
0: Thank you very much, Suzanne. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to conclude But a thought I had about the question about how do you, really how do you change perception in practice. Uh, I think one of the things that's so essential is A, listening to the words of others and the stories of others.
2: Because
0: without that, what other way do we have to then start, whether it's empathy or whatever it is, to kind of reverse uh, maybe a behavior. Uh, we heard here yesterday, we were talking a bit about climate change in Houston, and mm. uh, there's an organization in town called Tejas, and it's uh, around mm. environmental uh, justice, uh, particularly the Latino communities of color. And one of the things they do is they offer toxic tours. Mm. I thought that mm-hmm. was a very interesting way, again, kind of coming at the question that we had. Um, that in my own community I could live here my whole lifetime and there's parts of this community I may never see but through that portal I suddenly am now able to see my own community from a very different kind of way and so by the generosity of those that do those tours it's an invitation to come and engage in a conversation begin changing uh, perspective and I and I've just been fortunate in my life to meet so many people like yourself who are willing to To extend, extend, like tonight, extend an invitation to journey together. And through that, you're sharing, suddenly we have something we take home. We may think now, I'll think about that a little different way. Or, gosh, the next time I'm in Santa Fe, I might think about this a little differently. Or now I have somebody I could call and say, would you mind helping me go another step? So that intercultural exchange Mm -hmm. is so important because to me that's one of the ways that we can probably proactively and positively start to change perspective. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say on behalf of the Rothko Chapel, thanks for being here this evening, and for so kindly and generously sharing your story with us today and engaging in a a conversation that um, I I really truly believe is a conversation that will continue in many ways we don't even know post Mm -hmm. as we leave these walls. And I say this every time we have a program here, when we leave here, we, we look out and we see the broken obelisk that was designed by Barnett Newman, another uh, contemporary of Mark Rothko, modern artist who really understood the power of art as it's possible for transformation. And some people don't know, but right on the little corner as you go out here, if you go out to the pool, some people don't realize it may be about this big or maybe not much bigger than this program. There's a dedication to the, Dr. Martin Luther King hmm. in his life and ministry and service. And, and I always think about that in the sense of those touchstones in, in our travels, however they come and whoever they are, that remind us that, that as we leave these places, there's work to be done, right? There's this ongoing work of transformation, justice, and equity. And uh, you've left us with some good thoughts and challenges, and I hope this is uh, just the second encounter, and we can have you back again. <laughs> so, Suzanne, can we all thank her for, well, for being with thank us you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to just, again, invite you to the reception we'll have in the bungalow as you leave the chapel, the second bungalow as we go west. Uh, We've got guides, and that'll help you get there. And then the last thing, do double check your program on the back. We always have upcoming programs, and I particularly want to invite you back here at our annual Dr. Martin Luther King uh, program we do always on his birthday, which is the 15th of January. It so happens that the national holiday and his birthday are on the same day this year, on Monday the 15th. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the programming we're going to do, and we're going to have an amazing speaker, uh, Ed Dwight, who is an African-American sculptor who, uh, in fact, if you've ever been to Austin and seen the new African-American uh, commemorative uh, sculpture on the, ch- on the grounds, he did that sculpture sculpture, and the sculpture at uh, the McGovern Gardens at Herman Park of Dr. King, he also did that. He's well-known nationally as a sculptor. And we're going to engage in a conversation about the power of symbols and monuments and the things that we hold up that both enhance life and those that detract from life. And through the day, we also, on the plaza, have recordings of Dr. King's speeches and sermons as a way to keep that conversation going through the day. So I hope you'll come to that. I hope you'll come to the reception tonight, and thank you all for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you.